0: It looks like all hope is lost and you will have that experience in your life as well, where you will look at life and you'll think there is no hope that there is no chance for reversal. There's no hope for change. There's no way we're going to get out of this mess. We're not there's no way we are going to get through this. And that is where the nation of Judah is as we come to Second Kings chapters 18 and 19 is that we are going to see a king and a nation in a horrible predicament in which there appears to be no hope, no way out, no chance, no way of rescue and we're going to see some great works about God see some amazing things said about uh, the people and what they were doing and certainly get some great applications very excited about this text and uh, so much about we see and it all centers around. A new king taking the throne. His name is Hezekiah. Hezekiah takes the throne. And you're told in 2 Kings chapter 18, and you'll notice there in verse 3, something that is said that we haven't heard for a really, really long time. Chapter 18 of 2 Kings and verse 3 says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that's not the part that's been a really long time. But the rest of the phrase according to all that David, his father, had done. The last time we read a king in Judah who not only did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but then is compared positively to David has been approximately 200 years earlier with King Asa back in 1 Kings chapter 15 that's how long it's been since we've had this kind of high quality king be a ruler over judah it is startling to come to this statement and read this comparison and to see what what is told to us about the king hezekiah and we will get a sense of why he is rated this way you'll notice in verse four that he removes the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the asherah we've seen other kings do that but Let your amazement just hit when you look at what is said next. Middle of verse 4. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until these days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Whoa. (laughs) We weren't told that anywhere. That this goes all the way back to Numbers 21, way, way, way on back with a bronze serpent in the wilderness. That generation that because of their complaining, and we are told that after Moses puts that bronze serpent on a pole as a means by which for the people to be healed when they by faith look toward that pole... Apparently, they took that bronze serpent with them. And not only did they take that bronze serpent with them, they have been practicing idolatrous offerings toward it ever since the Exodus, which is just absolutely stunning. Except maybe it's not. Because this probably depicts the human condition at its strongest. That is, we take the blessings of God And we take the gifts of God and we turn them into idols. Uh, And that's just really characteristic of what we do is here is God who blesses, who gives wonderful gifts and we turn them into objects of worship. We talked about that this morning quite a bit. We take the wealth that God has blessed us with. And we end up devoting ourselves to it. We take the the gift of marriage and sex and things like that. We make an idol out of it. We devote ourselves to it. We take all these things that God blesses us with and gives us and and overflows with with grace. And what do we do but turn around and then make an idol out of it? We make it our priority. We make it the utmost rather than seeing it as a gift that God has given us. Here you see Israel doing the same thing. The thing that had become the object by which they could be healed now turns into the object. Object of idolatry. And so we see with Hezekiah that he has the courage and the boldness to to not only deal with the false gods and cut down the Asherah poles and tear down the high places, but you're told there in the middle of verse four, he even breaks in pieces the bronze serpent. Listen to verse five. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held a fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord, that the Lord commanded Moses and the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered just Glowing imagery is that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. He's rated as the best king that Judah ever has. And it even says that God was making him prosper because he had aligned his will to the will of God and was keeping the commands of God. And so this is the overview of of Hezekiah's reign that's given to us in, in these first eight verses. We haven't seen somebody like him in a really long time which sets up then what happens for the rest of hezekiah's life really to be interesting to to observe notice a couple of the things that that takes place we're reminded of where we are in basically world history at this point from verse 9 to verse 12 we are reminded that assyria has wiped out israel this, Kind of puts it back into play that we need to remember that Hezekiah is on the throne when Assyria is the world power and they aren't just the world power in talk. They have taken the northern nation of Israel and have taken them off the land, have scattered them to the other nations and have put their own people even on this land. And so it is in this moment that you have Hezekiah in a crisis because Assyria is not happy with just simply taking Israel's land and seeing that artificial boundary and then returning on back home. They are also now threatening the land of Judah. And that's what happens in verse thir- in verse 13 is that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes up. Verse 13 says he comes up against all the fortified cities of Judah And he takes them. So you have now Assyria wiping out Israel and now capturing every important city except for Jerusalem under the reign of Hezekiah. Now, what's Hezekiah going to do? You'll notice in verse 14, Hezekiah says to the king of Assyria, he sends a message. I have done wrong. Withdraw for me and whatever you impose on me. I will bear. And so the king then, in the middle of verse 14, says he requires of him 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Verse 15 Hezekiah gave him all the silver that he found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria huge misstep it's interesting to hear yet another king under the threat of, a, of an outsider coming in under invasion, doing the same failure that other kings of Judah have done in the past. We've read on a couple of occasions that the temple has been raided of the gold and the silver, stripped bare of the things of value. We get a sense that maybe some of it had been put back in, only for Hezekiah now to take it back out and ship it off to Assyria. And I think this is important to observe for what the rest of the scene is in regards to the reign of uh, of, of hezekiah is that in this first step that he makes his faith wobbles we were just told he trusted in the lord with all of his heart there's not a better king that reigned over this other nation that judah nation except hezekiah but when the time of crisis came he wobbled just like all the other kings had done his faith wobbles in this moment and he goes and he strips the temple and pays off the king of Assyria. The interesting thing about doing something like that is when you pay off the king of Assyria, who's to say they're going to keep their word and leave you alone? And the king of Assyria does not leave Judah alone. And we're told in verse 19 that they go on and say that they are going to attack. And Assyria's message is very simple. Verse 19 uh, the Rabshakeh that is uh, the Assyrian title your translation may say an Assyrian commander it's the formal title of this Assyrian commander who is representing the king of Israel and so here he makes this declaration and he says there in verse 19 thus says the great king the king of Assyria on what do you rest this trust of yours <laughs> essentially Why aren't you giving up? After they took the money, they basically send a message, you need to surrender. And if you don't surrender, you are going to die. And so the rest of this section primarily are the words from the king of Assyria through this commander making these declarations saying, you shouldn't trust in your God. For a number of reasons. In particular, he says, we wiped out the northern nation, which had all of those gods. That didn't really work out for them. That's not going to be a, a good strategy for you whatsoever. Don't think you can rely upon Egypt. Verse 22. If you think that Egypt is going to work for you, uh, it's going to splinter under your hand like a little twig. They're not going to support you either. And then you'll notice verse 25, where he says, moreover, Is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So why are you thinking you're going to get out of this? You have torn down your altars and and high places. We wiped out Israel. Egypt's not going to be able to help you. And your very God, the Lord told us to come and do this. So surrender is the message That is given, And I think it is really interesting that somewhat humorous verse 26, they kind of send a message back saying, please don't talk in the language that the common people of Jerusalem can hear what you're saying to hear these threats that you are making, which only emboldens them all the more to continue to do that. And notice verse 27 has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and to not the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. If you do not surrender, that's your outcome. They have surrounded the city and you are ultimately going to be doomed. And so surrender before it is too late. And so he continues to describe the need to surrender. Verse 31, he yells to them and says, you need to come and make peace. And if you do that, verse 32, I'll take you to a fine land, a lion that's just like yours. And it will be full of bread and vineyards and olive trees and honey that you may live. But if you listen to Hezekiah, you are going to die. But in the middle of this long winded speech, <clears throat> this commander, as he speaks on behalf of the king of Assyria, I think speaks a fatal error. And I want you to notice verse 33. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? First step he makes is nobody's God has ever rescued them from all these nations we've conquered. None of their gods have ever helped them. They're all been destroyed. Verse 35 Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? In short, no God can stop me. Everything seems to be very true and in line up to this point. But then he says the words. There's been no God up to this point that can stop me. And not even your God. The Lord is going to deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. I am unstoppable. So what's Hezekiah going to do with this situation? Here it looks like all hope is lost. It looks like there is no chance For there to be any kind of rescue, what is Hezekiah going to do this time? Will he try to pay more money? Will he try to go to Egypt and get their support? Chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself in sackcloth, and he went to the house of the Lord. Verse 2, he sends one of his servants, Eliakim, along with some of his other servants covered in sackcloth into verse 2 to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. It says, Isaiah, that you have in your Bibles, the prophet Isaiah, the very book that is given to him. And so the response of Hezekiah is... Rather than trying to pay him off again, rather than making the mistake of going to Egypt, he goes to God and pleads with the Lord and sends messengers to Isaiah and notice the hope that they have. Verse three, here's the message to Isaiah. This day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. In short, fancy way to say, we're doomed. We're all going to die. We aren't getting out of this alive. Verse four, it may be that the Lord your God has heard the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Notice what Hezekiah's hope is. Hezekiah's hope is not, well, we're not as as bad as Assyria. We're more righteous than them, which would have been certainly true. Maybe. At this point, they're pretty bad. Or that we'll do better or anything like that. Notice the simple hope that Hezekiah has is The Lord should act because God is being blasphemed. That Assyrian commander said that no God would be able to deliver us out of their hand. And Hezekiah sends messengers to Isaiah and says, maybe God isn't going to let that stand. Maybe God isn't going to tolerate such insolent words like that to, for this king to think that our God does not have the ability to rescue us. And so Hezekiah humbles himself, tears his clothes, goes to the temple, pleads with the Lord, sends his messengers who have also humbled themselves, torn their clothes, gone in sackcloth and ashes to Isaiah. And notice the message that Isaiah gives in verse six. The answer is, it is very simple. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Isaiah says, don't be afraid. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have a, Rumor come into the mind of the king, and all of a sudden he's just going to turn around and leave. And when he turns around and leaves, when he gets back to his own country, he's going to die there. Now it's important to try to put yourself in this situation and think about trying to be Hezekiah for a moment. Here you have the Lord with a very simple message: You're going to be rescued. Don't be afraid. I'm going to do something really quite unbelievable. They're just going to leave. The king of Assyria says, Lord's not going to deliver you. In fact, that continues in the the rest of chapter 19 and verse 8. This commander again turns around and starts hollering to all the people and hollering to Hezekiah. Verse 10, don't let... Your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. You just imagine the the propaganda that's going on as they're shouting out, don't trust Hezekiah and don't trust your God. We've wiped out everybody up to this point and you're next if you don't surrender. And then there's this this one lone voice, Isaiah, who says, trust God, they're going to leave. Which voice are you going to believe? Which one are you going to trust in? When the army has you surrounded and the swords are drawn. And one lone prophet says, don't be afraid, you're going to make it through. But everything that you see sounds like it's not going to happen. Everything that you see just doesn't look like there's any way for rescue at all. I want you to notice what Hezekiah does. In verse 14, he takes these letters that he's received from these Assyrian messengers, these messages of the threats, the need to surrender, all that's going to happen to them. In verse 14, he takes those messenger messages and he takes those letters and it says there in the middle of verse 14, he went to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord and Hezekiah prayed and Before the Lord and said, verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. You have to love what Hezekiah does. He takes all the threats that are on paper and takes them into the temple of God and lays them before God. And what a prayer. And did you see what the basis of his prayer is? Essentially the glory of God. We have observed this so many times in our studies and I want to underscore it to you again. The best basis for prayer, for asking God to act is so that God's glory would be on display in the world. And that's what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah says, this Assyrian king has wiped out of the other nations and thrown all the gods in the fire. But here's what I know. Those were all false gods and didn't matter. But he says there in verse 19, save us so that all the nations and all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you're not like those gods And you alone are able to save. So what's God going to say to this? The rest of the picture is beautiful. Notice in verse 20, Isaiah now has a message sent to King Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard. And this is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. So here's the message to Assyria, about Assyria, that Isaiah is giving to Hezekiah. So when it says she, here is Assyria. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of of Jerusalem. "...whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel, by your messengers you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon." I felt the tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place with its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Look at verse 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I will bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded. And I have become like plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down and I know you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me. And your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Huge response by God that comes. And the simple summary is God says this to Assyria. Who do you think you're mocking? Who do you think you're talking to? And the way that is played out by God is so powerful because here he is asking the question, verse 22, who have you mocked? Who have you revived? Here you are talking about all the things you've done. Verse 23, verse 24, I dug wells, I conquered nations, I did all those things. And verse 25, God comes in and says, why do you think you could do that except I planned it? The only reason you have taken any fortified city and have any kind of success is because I said so. And now you turn around and mock me? (laughs) I'm the whole reason you're in the position you're in. Huge answer that the Lord gives about this. That God steps in and says, I am the reason that this has occurred. And then he turns and gives a message to Hezekiah in verses 29 through 31 and gives him a sign that, Judah is going to survive. Jerusalem will continue forward. Verse 31, there will be a remnant. The zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish it. And then something stunning in verse 32, here's what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. What a statement that God makes. They're not even going to shoot an arrow. That's how this is going to go. They're not even walking in the city. They're not even going to start building up the siege ramps. They're not going to walk a single foot in here. And the whole reason why is because of his own name and for the promise that he made to David. Verse 35, and that night, an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all these dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping at the house of Nisroch his god, Amarilech and Sharezar, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Everything. Just as God had said. Two big points that I really want to get to talking about. First, overarching point, really, with two subpoints that that really go with that. Title of the lesson is "Take It to the Lord," and I want us to see that Hezekiah at first fails to do this, and then he understands that what you need to do in the time of crisis is to take your crisis to God in your time of darkness that we would see that we need to go to God because there is power in prayer. Please think about this circumstance. Who would have ever imagined that this would be the way that God would answer Hezekiah's prayer? This is the way you would have visualized how it all would have worked out. They won't even shoot an arrow. They won't even walk in the city. An angel of the Lord is just going to wipe out 185,000 soldiers. The king is just going to leave. And when he gets back home, he's going to die. Who would have ever prayed the prayer like that? Who would have ever said, Lord, here's what I want you to do. I want there to not even be a battle, not even shoot an arrow, not even walk into the city. I know that they're a great and powerful nation, but just make it where they all just die and leave. I don't know that anybody would have offered that prayer. And so often God is trying to remind us about how God can answer prayer in ways that we would seem to consider to be absolutely impossible. It may be why Isaiah didn't say exactly all that was going to happen. Isaiah just said, don't be afraid, he's going to leave. Because who would believe this is going to be the outcome? Who would just be thinking, okay, that makes perfect sense, how that's all going to work out. We take it to the Lord because he is the one who can do something with the impossible circumstances that we find ourselves in. He is the one who is able to answer prayer and to answer things and do things in ways that are beyond our comprehension or even our imagination. How often God has to say to us, there is nothing impossible with God or even Jesus saying all things are possible with him. And sometimes we fail to grasp that. Sometimes we argue against that. Well, God can't do anything in this circumstance. And I hope when you have those moments of doubt and you feel the temptation not to take your crisis to God, that you would think about this circumstance and think, who would ever believe that this would be the way that God would answer a prayer? And who would ever think that the Assyrians could be completely routed, Killed, sent away, and the people of Judah and all of its armies did absolutely nothing. They just went to bed that night and the next day they were gone. That's the power of God. And how God is able to answer prayer in the most amazing way. Take your crisis to God, number one, because there is power in prayer. Take your crisis to God, number two, because God is constantly trying to make the point that he is the one who is in control. Did you notice in verses 23 and 24, do you feel like you almost have the rich fool with the amount of eyes and minds that are stated in that section? Where he says there, it is with my many chariots and I have gone up on the heights of the mountains and the far reaches of Lebanon. I felled the tallest cedar trees. I entered the farthest lodging places. I dug the wells. I drank the foreign waters. I dried up the rivers and the streams with my, with my feet. It is Assyria going, it's all about me and we're in control and I and my and I and my and here's all that I'm going to do. And I love that God's answer to that is just simply, you thought you were in control. Foolish one. God is in control. You thought all your eyes and minds meant that you were strong. You had your control and you were doing all this of your own power and might and did not understand that God was giving you that opportunity, that God was allowing that to happen, that God was the reason for Assyria's success, that God was the reason why they were victorious over Israel and victorious over other nations. It wasn't because Assyria was the strongest, Assyria was the greatest. It's because here is God saying in verse 25, I determined it long ago. I planned it from days of old, what now I bring to pass. Syria thought they had it all worked out and all figured out. Here's God going, you know what? A long time ago, I'd already figured that out. I'd already set that ball in motion. That I'm the reason why you had any win or any victory whatsoever. There is so much hope for us in placing a weight in the sovereignty of God. We come to God in crisis. We take it to him in prayer because we recognize the power of prayer that God is able to do the impossible. And we take it to him because we understand that he's in control. He is in control. And he is in control over the affairs of the earth. And he is in control of what is happening. And there is great faith and great trust that Hezekiah is expressing at this moment. And that we then, as we come to him in prayer, that we would pray to God for God to respond for his own glory. So that all people would see that the Lord and the Lord alone is truly God. Now here's the little bit of hope. Hezekiah's first reaction was wrong. He learned from it and took it to the Lord. And like us, usually our first reaction is that faltering step the wrong way. And here's God saving. That's all right. Learn from it and take it to me. I can do the impossible. I'm the one in control. Come to him for the help that you need. Don't look elsewhere and don't let your faith falter in the moment of crisis. But be like Hezekiah and take your pleas and take your concerns, take your requests and metaphorically just lay them out before the presence of God and say, God, here it all is. And now you act for your glory and for your good. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a stunning picture of your power And how you answer your servant Hezekiah. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we should always turn to you and nowhere else. Because you have the power to do something about our circumstances. And you are sovereign over the affairs of the earth. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to have a greater trust in you. To see you with the very lens that this text is giving. That we would observe your power and your might. And Lord, when we feel like all hope is lost. We feel like that there may not be answers and we don't know which way to go and we don't know what to do. Help us to see that we would turn things to you immediately. Help us to lay our petitions at your feet. Help us to remember that you listen to our requests and that you love us. And that even when we fail, that we can come right back to you and put these things at your feet. Thank you for being the almighty God that you are. And Lord, it is absolutely humbling It's absolutely stunning to think that as powerful, sovereign, and capable as you are, that you listen to people like us and that you act on our behalf. Thank you for that love. Thank you for hearing our pleadings. Thank you for listening to our cries. Thank you for being our Father in Jesus' name. Amen. What a powerful picture that you see from Hezekiah. What a powerful picture of what Hezekiah gives. And I hope that we would do the same as him and to truly take it to the Lord, to give him everything because he's in control and he has the power. Can we help you to turn your life to Jesus this very night, to turn away from your sins, trust him with your life, with all of your heart, and to follow him faithfully. We're here for you to help you do that. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sow?